0: Workin' hard on my summer days, ready just to throw open all the windows, get
1: away. welcome man. We are all about the donuts. I, this does have some sniff, but Micah used it last week, and I think all the sniff is gone. <clears throat> but we're all about the donuts. Plastic donuts. If you're brand new, you're thinking, what in the world? Well, welcome to Whitewater. My name is David Vaughn. We are going through two books over the next couple of weeks. This book, if you haven't got one yet, we have restocked. I mean, there's been a lot that we're taking last week. So we got a new shipment in. If you didn't get one when you come in, when you leave, look at the tables. So we're studying this book, but we're studying this book. And tonight, I want to just kind of have a conversation, if we could, heart to heart, about what an acceptable kind of giving level or amount might be to God. I might even call it an acceptable donut, all right? So this series, we are talking about some really sensitive stuff, and we want to talk about giving not from our perspective, because that's usually how does it affect me, but I want to talk about it from God's viewpoint, God's perspective. Most of us, when we give, we give a lot and we do a lot of good. We can feed the hungry, we can help the sick, we can spread the good news, we can solve around here seven different kinds of problems. We call it solve seven. All that happens when we give. But most importantly, our giving can, believe it or not, please the God, the Father uh, who gave us all of these gifts. Our giving, if done correctly from the heart, can connect us in ways to Jesus that nothing else can. Our gifts can actually delight, delight the heart of God. And so this book kind of takes us on this journey of children giving to God and we children giving to God, gifts that are, believe it or not, acceptable. Some of us maybe don't give a lot, and we say, man, how could my gift be acceptable? It can. Now I have found, and this is gonna shock you now, that people have very strong opinions about how much they should give, about what they should give, what is acceptable to give. Seniors among our church here have strong views about how young people should give. Younger people have their own ideas about how giving looks like to them. Uh, Those of us who are poor have fairly strong ideas about what the rich should be doing and vice versa. And there's plenty of blogs and books about all this and for sure, when a preacher starts to talk about money, oh my gosh, you're getting too close for comfort. It generates a lot of talk and tension. I've been doing some studying on surveying about the enormous emotional and physical toll that money takes on people. I got this from Market Watch. It says, money is the biggest source of stress for Americans, research shows. A Northwestern Mutual Fund study found that money was the dominant source of stress for 44% of Americans. So half the crowd in here, you're probably worried about your money. Financial firm John Hancock, their financial stress survey uh, recently released, found that 69% of workers in America are stressed over their finances, and 72% admit to worrying pretty much every day about their money. And it's no wonder Americans across the board are drowning in financial troubles, the article said. Credit card debt has hit a record high this year at more than $1 trillion dollars. According to the Federal Reserve, student loan debt has jumped 150% over that same span. All of us, all the stress, it takes a big toll on us. In fact, they had a phrase in the article that just popped out to me, bad wealth begets bad health. That's true. Man, some of us in this room know when we're financially stressed, we haven't right-sized this. It creates all kinds of problems. The article listed it. I won't read all of them to you, but give me a, a couple of lists. Depression and anxiety, migraines, ulcers, digestive issues, not just because you're eating at Skyline now, financial problems you got, high blood pressure, heart attacks, disrupted sleep. It said here that half of both women and men say they lose sleep at night because they're worried about money. And that's why Americans spend, are you ready for this? 40 billion on sleep aids alone in America. What are you gonna do about that? It's stressful and it's no wonder, especially for our younger people who are struggling in our church with student loan debt, the cost of health insurance on young families is soaring. By the way, those two drivers, student loan debt, cost of health insurance soaring. Those two issues are leading younger people to actually embrace in our society socialism as a viable option. You'll hear about that as the campaign season emerges. And that is a problem because socialism is unsustainable, it's un-American, and it's actually unbiblical. So you can see all kinds of things happen when we don't right-size what this author would call our plastic donuts, what we give back to God. So how do we handle our finances acceptably? And for those of us who feel guilty because we're not doing much, how do we present an acceptable gift back to him? I'm so glad you asked because I want to kind of probe that tonight. I want to start way back in the book of Genesis, a story about two brothers named Cain and Abel. We're not told too much about these boys, but here's what we do know about them. The Bible tells us what they gave to God. By the way, what if the only record of your life in the annals of history was what your giving record was? I mean, what would that say about you? But here's what Moses, who wrote Genesis, says about Cain and Abel. And maybe you never noticed this before. Chapter 4, Genesis: A. Adam made love to his wife. You know that is in the Bible. I don't know how you think kids get here, but that's pretty much what happened. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, "With the help of the Lord I brought forth a man." And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So, first two first two human beings born on planet Earth. Remember Adam was created, Eve created from a rib from Adam's side. Here's the first two babies born in this new world. And they named that second child Abel. Abel means vapor or breath, which was kind of ironic because he wasn't going to last very long, just a breath of life. Now, Abel kept flocks, so he was a shepherd. Cain worked the soil, so he was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. I'm going to come back to that. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor wasn't acceptable. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. If I was writing, it would be the mm, mealy mouth. Some of you've seen your kids like that. They're, they're just not happy. Then the Lord said to Cain, and God is so good at asking questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted or have an acceptable gift? By the way, when God asks you questions, could I just give you a clue? He already knows the answer. It's not like God's really wondering. He's waiting for you to answer. He's waiting for you to come to this knowledge. But if you do not do what is right, he says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were both in the field, Cain attacked, believe it or not, his brother Abel, and what? Killed him. He killed him. On this occasion in Genesis 4, we see two brothers presenting their gifts to God. Bluntly, one was viewed with favor, the other was not. And as we reflect back on this Genesis narrative here for a few minutes, ask yourself this question, which of these brothers am I? Am I like Cain or am I like Abel? You know, sibling rivalries go way back, I mean like all the way back. This is a perfect illustration of this. Time Magazine had a big cover story a few years ago about siblings and they cited a lot of research, and one was a study about fighting among siblings. Do you know how much quarreling, according to Time Magazine, do you know how much quarreling goes on among siblings? Kids between the ages of two and four average 6.2 fights per hour. Some of you say at home moms or dads, you get that. That's like, I did the calculation on that. That's like 90 fights per day 3,000 fights per year. If you're parenting little kids, no wonder you're tired. You're like refereeing fights all day long. But this sibling rivalry led to the first murder. Think about how audaciously bad that is. The first human born killed the second human born. All because God favored Abel's gift. It's fascinating to me. The first fight in human history was over an offering. It wouldn't be the first time a fight broke out over finances in a home, in a relationship, in a church. And throughout the centuries, scholars have speculated as to why God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. And it could be, I just kind of, maybe it's just me, I just kind of read the Bible for the answers and still try to guess. It's always a good practice. So I think the best, best explanation of, of that lies is in the language itself. So I want to review a couple of things I read to you about Abel's offering as it's described by the writer. He said, Abel gave some of the firstborn of his flock to God when it was offering time. Now there's a principle here that will appear later in scripture that says all of the firstborn things belong to God. It's called the principle of first fruits. The idea is that when the first return appears, whether it's fruit or uh, of the field or the tree or the flock, it's given to God as an act of trust that he'll continue to provide. It's the idea that I won't give God what's easy or give God what's left. I'm gonna give God the best, the first, because he gave the best for me. And the cool thing with God is there's always more where that came from. You shovel it out, God shovels in, he got a bigger shovel, I'm just telling you. So a lot of people, for some reason, probably nobody in this room, but a lot of people give God kind of what's left, not like Abel, what's first. I love the radio commentary of old Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. And Paul Harvey News. some of you are at an age where you'll remember that. Paul Harvey shared a great example this years ago, a woman called the Butterball Turkey Company and asked the customer service representative a question. She said, we have a Turkey that has been in our freezer for 23 years. And we wondered if it would be okay to roast it and serve it. The customer service representative said, well, you know what? Uh, That's an odd question. I'm gonna have to check with some others. I'll get back with it. She called the caller back. We have an answer for you, but we need to ask you a couple questions. First, are you certain it has been frozen all this time? Yes. Are you, was it securely wrapped? Oh yes, in fact, we double wrapped it several years ago, the woman said. Well, the customer service rep said, we think it'd be okay to roast it, to bake it, but we do not believe it would have much flavor. To which the caller said, well, that's kind of what we thought. I guess we'll just go ahead and give it to the church then. <laughs> A lot, can't you see somebody doing that? And they were probably thinking, wow, aren't I pretty good? Is that acceptable? Is that your best? Is it your last? The second phrase in Genesis is also revealing about why Abel's gift, I think, was acceptable. It says that Abel, I don't know if you caught it, it says that Abel gave the fat portions to God in his offering. Now in our day, fat has like negative connections and connotations. We figure like lean cuisine is much more spiritual. But in the ancient days, the battle was against starvation And fat was a term to designate the most desirable part, the most life-giving part. Sometimes they didn't even know where their next meal was gonna come from. And Abel here has chosen to give his best to God. And by contrast, Cain's offering, if you read the text, seems to be a little casual, if not downright stingy. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So the writer is really clearly contrasting the sum versus the best to show the difference in the offering. (laughs) So let me kind of get practical with you. If someone were to say to you, I brought you the biggest slice of the best homemade chocolate cream pie I've ever made, or that person said, I just brought you some Oreos that I picked up on the way, which one is more favorable, more attractive, more appealing? well, I think I'd pick the homemade banana cream pie or chocolate cream pie. Well, God, the best one who judges all the giving, when he looks at our giving, would he say that we come with a some mentality or a best mentality? It says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering. In other words, he accepted it. But on Cain in his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, Cain could have, at this point, done a heart check. He changed. He could That could have been like a really urgent, important, and needed wake-up call for Cain. Instead, he broods, he resents Abel, and envy of his brother enters the world all because of giving and finances and offerings. And that just shows me that even in a new earth with a lot of needs, giving was still important, but envy can strike anybody anywhere, even if you're the first human that's ever born. Even among the most spiritual of people, envy can strike. I heard about a demon who was assigned to tempt a priest, but he wasn't getting anywhere. The P- priest was pretty strong. And the devil said, you're, you're going about it all wrong. Tell him his brother has been made the bishop of Antioch. Now see what happens with him. That's exactly what's going on here. And what is the result? Cain is eventually driven from his homeland. He's cursed. The curse of Cain occurs. While Abel is later included in what some call the hall of faith. You know, sports have their hall of fame. The New Testament has their hall of fame. Let me read it to you. It's Hebrews 11. If you have time, you can look at all the people listed here. But here's what it says in verse 4. By faith, I mean, he made it to the hall of fame, Abel. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. The English Standard Version says a more acceptable offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. And indeed, he's speaking tonight, still speaking. Now, theologians will continue. You might tonight, on your way home, debate the difference in the meaning of Cain and Abel's gift. But the bottom line reality is reflected by the writer of Hebrews here. Abel's gift was acceptable. Cain's gift was not. So I want to drill down on acceptable for a few minutes. The English language really doesn't have a word that fully expresses the biblical concept or idea of acceptable. In our American culture, in our use of the word, it has come to mean acceptable just good enough. Example. If my wife made me a new dish tonight, she worked on it today, that she spent hours preparing, and when I get home tonight after service, after tasting it, she says to me, how do you like it? And I say to something like, this, thanks, it's acceptable. That's probably not going to go over very well for anybody, me included. There will be no more homemade chocolate cream pie for me or anything else probably for a while. Acceptable, in our view, is like barely passable, adequate. But in God's view, being acceptable is a powerful concept. It's a positive thing. It's a good thing. King David of Israel understood the meaning of acceptable when he wrote this in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Paul urges the Roman Christians to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi later on in the New Testament and said that their gifts of money for the ministry needs were a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So what is acceptable? The very last book in the Old Testament is a guy named Malachi. I was working with the new... Christian one time in our church. He said, I've been reading that uh, Malachi uh, book there. I think he was Italian. I said, no, it's, it's, it's okay. It's Malachi and they had a problem and Malachi had to bring it up with God's people It was sensitive, but he said, Hey, listen, we got a problem here. God's not happy with the offerings you're giving him. And here's what he put it. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, they weren't bringing the best. They were bringing the worst. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. I mean, just let that slide in your world, in the earth. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept? There's our word. Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. So as I finish out here, let me give you a couple of guidelines on acceptable giving. What is an acceptable gift? From this book, if you're reading it, some of this you may know. If you haven't read it, it'll be new to you. And some acceptable things that parallel, by the way, this book. And here they are. They're very simple. Number one, the amount matters when it comes to acceptability. Let me just kind of pry into your world now. When the gift matters, when the gift amount matters to you, it probably matters to God. If the gift doesn't really matter to you, doesn't give a rip to you, it probably doesn't matter to God. That's why he said to them in that day, quit bringing me these castaway gifts. Because the quality, the amount, it kind of matters. Our book tells about John. His name is John. Maybe you read this, I laughed out loud when I read it. John is a 26-year-old software engineer from a growing tech company. He's pretty satisfied with his $95,000 a year salary. He makes the maximum contributions to his company's 401k. He enjoys his $2,000 a month apartment near the ocean, his new hybrid SUV. He's got that sports edition package that allows him to take his specialty bike with him. He's excited about life. He's also excited, John is, about the beginning of his life with his long-term girlfriend, Amy. They've talked about marriage a lot lately and when Mary saw the small velvet box that John pulled from his pocket after a romantic dinner, it took her breath away. And when he got down on one knee, she knew it was happening. She just couldn't quite believe that it was. But when she opened the box, her reaction changed. She tried not to appear disappointed, but when she learned that John had purchased a cubic zirconian ring that cost only $250, she was devastated. Now Amy is not a materialistic person, yet she still found his gift to be deeply insulting. She sobbed, she cried, John didn't follow. He was stung by her reaction. John said something he immediately regretted. The amount I paid for the ring doesn't matter. It's the heart that counts. Now here's what poor stupid Still single, John doesn't understand. It's the amount that helps engage the heart. Does the amount matter? Yeah, it does. Somebody's saying, David, I know Jared Jewelers paid you to have that. No, no, that not exactly. But during his most famous message called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives instruction about the amount. In fact, this, I would call this the Sermon on the Amount. Okay, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Oh, don't put your, all your donuts there. Where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. They, they do. They do. I have to get this confirmed. Pat could probably tell me he's here tonight. I understand that over the last couple of days, somebody stole and siphoned some gas out of our Solve 7 truck that's parked out here. Now, let me ask you a question. How bad do you have to be to steal gasoline from a church truck that says, Sol- now we're Solve eight. We're providing gasoline now <laughs> for everybody. So now we gotta get some kind of lock on the gas tank of the Solve seven truck. Jesus, <laughs> vermin destroy, thieves rake in and steal. wouldn't it be cool if they that whoever stole that found jesus they went all in and they said the first time i came to your property i was stealing gasoline god could do stuff like that you know (laughs) but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal now this is the killer for where your treasure is there your heart will be also Nobody can serve two masters. Either hate the one, love the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, notice what Jesus said here. Notice what he did not say. Jesus did not say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He said it the way he did on purpose. Because giving is one of the truest tests that reveal where our heart is because our hearts always follow our treasure. Remember, the amount helps engage the heart. Jesus says, like, show me your checkbook, show me your credit card statement, show me your calendar, and I'll show you where your priorities are, where your heart is. And as surely as a compass needle finds north, your heart will always follow your treasure. Where money leads, hearts will follow. Sometimes i hear people say in our church, I just wish I had a, more of a heart for the church and what you're doing. I wish I just had more of a heart for the lost. I wish I had more of a heart for helping the poor. And if that's ever you, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. It's not complicated. Put your money in the blue boxes every time you come to church. Sign up to be a regular e-giver through the app. Whether you're here or not, you're giving. And watch your heart follow. Now, you can just test me on this to see if I'm not uh, telling you the truth. If you reallocate the amount of money that you're spending on temporary things and start investing in eternal things, you just watch what happens. But God, see, he's not looking at the amount. He's looking primarily at your heart. He wants your heart. So God isn't looking for donors who will just kind of casually throw a few bucks towards something. God is seeking disciples, not just donors. He's into faith building, not just fundraising. He wants people, even on a Thursday night, so filled with passion and vision for the kingdom that they wouldn't dream of not investing their time, their talent, their treasure where it matters most. But the amount, According to the book here, the amount matters. And number two, guess what? We determine the amount. This is the good news and the bad news for you. We determine the amount. Here's how Paul explained it to the Corinthian believers. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not not because he says, not because someone's twisting your arm, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, a happy giver. The word actually means hilarious giver. Now, I love golf. Is there anybody in here that loves golf? I, I, I love golf. I love to watch golf. I love to play golf. Not long ago, there was a PGA Tour guy named Matt Kuchar. He found himself in a very uncomfortable, embarrassing position last fall. He's a big, smiling, internationally known, popular golfer, but he wound up on the wrong end of a publicity nightmare. He played in the Mayakoba Classic, and his usual caddy had a previous engagement. He couldn't make the tournament, which was held in Cancun, so Kuchar hired a local caddy named David Ortiz, And Ortiz reported to Golf.com that he struck a deal with Kuchar to kind of be his temporary caddy, and he would work for $3,000 as his caddy that week. There was no provision negotiated in the event that Kuchar won the tournament, but maybe there should have been because Matt Kuchar won the Mayakoba Classic and the first place prize of $1.3 million. Now, typically caddies on the PGA Tour, they get 10% of the winnings of the player they carry the bag for it. That's like a caddy tithe, I guess, you know, (laughs) this considered like standard compensation. When a fill-in caddy is used, that percent is reduced. But here's what Kuchar, even though he won paid Ortiz, he gave him $5,000. Now that's more than the 2000 they had agreed on, uh, you know, to 2000 more than they agreed on, but a far cry from the standard going rate. So when details of this came out, to the media, he was getting abused by lots of people. And he's a generally likable guy. Matt Kuchar has career earnings of about $47 million, but this came off kind of looking cheap and stingy to a local caddy from an economically deprived area who might never have another opportunity to make that kind of money again. So Kuchar, probably after talking to his agents, (laughs) Eventually, it went back and paid Ortiz $50,000 more and also made some generous donations to some local charities in the Cancun area. He eventually did the right thing, although I'm not sure how cheerful he was about his giving. Now, a couple things. I, love, I like Matt Kuchar. He's a good guy. I'm not trying to pile on. He just happens to work in a field where his earnings are very public and consequently, his generosity is scrutinized more than most. I wonder if that would be true of us. What if all of our incomes were revealed and our giving was made known, how would we feel about what we others think we give? More importantly, what does God think? So the amount matters. And number two, we determine the amount. But here's the last truth I wanna leave with you. The acceptable amount, what's acceptable is our question. The acceptable amount is primarily dictated by our abilities, the Bible says. Now, this is going to help a lot of you in the room tonight because this little or large voice of guilt is likely already kind of like speaking to you. So I want you to hear the words from God in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 10. Here's my judgment about what is best for you about giving in this matter, Paul says. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to give. In other words, your heart was engaged. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Giving, what's acceptable is according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So not everybody has the same ability to give in this room, but everybody has some ability to give. For those of us who have been blessed with a lot, much is required. I can't tell you what that acceptable gift is. That's between you and God. But if you're giving like very minimal amount, don't make the mistake of Matt Kucher. When you have million-dollar capacity, your giving should be in proportion. For those of us who are new or been attending here at church for a while, I'm just taking it for granted that you know our hearts, you know how much we do for others, give away hundreds of thousands of dollars here. So if you're like giving zero, when you have some income, that doesn't seem acceptable. Now, somebody would say, David, that doesn't doesn't happen, does it? People don't actually give zero. Could we talk just a second, lean in? My finance folks tell me that about 41% of our church family gives zero, nada. So full disclosure, when I get information like that, it really bums me out. Especially because I'll get a letter every once in a while, probably even after this series, all the church talks about is money, money, money. If that is true, I must be really horrible at this. If half our people don't give anything and all I do is talk about money, I just like stink at it. Somebody else should be doing that. But I'm this hopeless possibility thinker. And there's a part of me, and has always believed, and I always will believe, that reasonable people just like you will respond in positive ways when presented with an authentic, honest, heartfelt ask. I want to wind down by showing you a video that Beth Maxey and Micah, uh, who, who Beth serves as a critical staff in our financial area, they sat down for a few minutes to talk about this stuff. and It's, it's informational and it's inspirational to me in light of what's going on with Beth and her husband Mike. Check this out.
2: Well, Beth, thanks for talking with us. This is Beth Maxey. This is, uh, you're the... Financial director, Uh, financial secretary. Stewardship
0: director. Stewardship
2: director at uh, Whitewater Crossing. So thank you for talking with us. Of
0: course. Um, I have been tasked with helping people understand how they can best use the resources that God has given them. Um, So that means teaching people about generosity. Mm -hmm. It means teaching people about giving in general. It means teaching people about stewardship of their own resources. So that's just a little sampling of what I do. Mm
2: So, I've known you for five years. Yes, uh, and your husband. Mm-hmm. and um, and you guys have kind of been on a journey just for yourselves. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, of course. So, um Mike and I've been married for ten years. and a few years ago, we decided that we were sick and tired of being in debt all the time. And so we launched ourselves into this journey, uh, started with financial peace, um, and we decided we were gonna get out of debt. But about three years ago, just over three years ago, we decided we were gonna go hardcore. Um, we had a ton of debt, all nor- like what people consider normal, car loans, um, student loan debt, credit cards, medical debt. You- The only thing I think we didn't have was a home equity line of credit, but if we would have needed it, we probably would have had it. And so um, one of the things I think that people question is, well, do I still give? Like if I don't really have any money, do I I still tithe? And that was the first thing we decided that was the most important thing was that we could not give up tithing. So we decided to uh, walk in with faith, uh, both feet forward, both feet all the way in. And we went ahead and did that and, and decided. December of this past year, uh, we were debt free, and a week later, we found out that my husband had uh, stage four lung cancer. So, but you could see throughout this whole journey how God kept leading us one step after another, and how He was directing um, every next step that we took.
2: Do you see that walk is connected to what you've been walking through in the past few years? Like what? Tell me about what that's been like.
0: Okay, so yes, absolutely. I mean, um, when we found out that Mike had cancer, it was just that initial shock of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Uh, we knew we were in, in a position where uh, our budget wasn't, our budget was fine expenses wise, but we were gonna lose a lot of income with him stepping stepping away from his job. And uh, so we lost about 80% of our income in the course of overnight, basically, and what, we kept remembering is how faithful God had been every single step of the way. Um, When we had looked, when we looked back three years at the start of our, well, I would say restart of our financial (laughs) debt journey, um, we could clearly see how God had um, paved a way when it really, seemed that there was no way to get out of debt. And so uh, walking into this new journey of less income, we knew and we still know 100% that God will provide for every single need. And we are blown away month after month. Um, we get random cards in the mail. People send us gift cards or you know, people bring us meals. And um, it's in those little moments where you could really feel God saying, here, I got you and yeah. I'm never even, going to let you go.
2: Even in this, yes. I've still got exactly. you so now the capital campaigns uh were the first one was uh really just about building this building it was uh the second one was about really launching cell seven and then also uh aggressively paying down uh, the debt i heard chris say that we're we're substantially (laughs) ahead in terms of uh paying down the debt because david's goal was to uh we said we're going to pay off the debt in seven years right Uh, but then it seems like every year around may june-ish uh, we get kind of a slump.
0: We do, we do. So Wanna
2: talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so we, we call it our summer slump and it's not anything unusual. It happens not just at Whitewater but at churches all, all around the world. Um, but it's basically um, people go on vacation. Uh, they have kids with sports that do sports um, and people aren't actually in the building as often as they are normally throughout the school year. And so we see a dip in our general fund giving as well as our um, capital campaign giving Giving. Um, again, nothing abnormal, um, but it's just something that we expect year after year. Well,
2: well luckily when, when people don't show up, yes. then um, all of our bills also go down. Oh, right. Time, exactly. So just it's like just that. Evens yes. Out real no, nicely. but
0: the perfect thing is, is that we have the um, app that people can give if they're not here. That's how I give? Yes. Uh, it's easy. Um, and then, of course, if you're here, you can still do check and cash. But yes, the app makes giving regularly. Um, super easy. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Thanks, Beth. Yes.
1: And Beth and Mike, her husband, are over here to my left worshiping God during that singing. I'm so touched by their expression of faith and still doing what God has called them to do with what they have and trusting God, not just with their money, but with their life. So I could talk to you a lot more about what's acceptable, but here's what I ask you to do. If you're giving nothing here, could I ask you to start up? Kind of just start up giving. If you used to give, but you've fallen behind, this is the perfect time to catch up. And if you've been giving at the same level for a while, the Lord may want to challenge you to go up to another level and you determine what is acceptable. So please hear me tonight. God doesn't want your giving to be driven by guilt, even though I probably did a fairly good job with that today. He wants it to be given and driven by gratitude and by grace. Because the amount matters, we determine the amount, and it's determined by our abilities. Next week, we're going to finish this series, and I am going to call you to a commitment. I'm calling it the Donut Challenge. I'll unpack it more next week, and I'm going to challenge you to be a donut club giver and to make a commitment to give something that blesses the heart of the Father, And I want to just close. I'm going to have in just a second uh, someone come up and close us with prayer. I sent out an email to some folks we did, and it was about some generosity. And I got this wonderful response from Georgie Ike in our church. Uh, Georgie is 90, getting ready to be 91, Mama Ike, kind of the church matriarch in a lot of ways. She said, sweet David, generosity is the byproduct of our relationship with our father as you know, it takes some, uh, some of us longer to realize that he owns it all. Ownership is important to the world, and sometimes it takes longer with new family. I don't envy you in having to relate giving to everything we own, but there is no other joy like it. I remember when Jack, Jack was her uh, husband who's in heaven now. I remember when Jack and I first became part Christians that it was hard for us to put a dollar or two in church. It was a new experience. We also had some health issues with two children, so it was not easy. And then when tithing was introduced, oh, I just thought that was way too much to ask. However, we tried it, and it blessed us beyond measure. What a privilege and an honor! So, Mama Ike will always support the kingdom and love you, Georgie Ike.
0: Hey, again, thanks for.